0: This
1: is the court clerk again. There's someone who I've just admitted with an iPhone number. Would you please rename yourself or let me know who you are? Thank you.
2: Hi, this is Ana Yaramali from Latham. That cell phone line is a Latham line, and we will correct the name.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Judge Owens. We are gathered together today virtually for a first-day hearing in the Virgin Orbit Holdings case. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so I will turn the podium over to Proposed Counsel for the Debtors, and you can walk me through today's agenda.
3: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, Kara Coyle, Young Conaway, Stargate & Taylor, proposed co-counsel to the Debtors, Virgin Orbit Holdings, Inc., and certain of its affiliates. Can you hear me, Your Honor? I can. On behalf of the company, we'd like to thank Your Honor and your chambers for making the time to hear us today. We certainly appreciate it. Um, We'd also like to take the time to thank uh, Ms. Sarkeesian and the Office of the United States Trustee uh, for working with us so constructively over the past week. I believe we've um, narrowed many of the issues uh, that were raised by Ms. Sarkeesian uh, for purposes of today. Um, Your Honor, we're we're pleased to be working with our colleagues from Latham and Watkins, many of whom you'll hear from today. They've each been admitted pro hoc vice. Um, If it pleases the court, before I cede the podium, the virtual podium to Ms. Yuramali, I had one housekeeping matter. Um, We're trying to meet a funding deadline today, so we were hoping to take the dip up first, uh, and then wages, and then cash management. So we would be uh, going outside of the order that was presented in the agenda.
0: That would be fine.
3: All right, thank you, Your Honor. Unless Your Honor has any questions for me, I'll cede the virtual podium to Ms. Uramali.
0: Okay, and just so everyone knows, um, I've read all the pleadings, and since you have a funding deadline, you can tailor your presentations as you see fit. Of course, I know how important it is to tell your story on the first day, so I don't mean to imply that you should not present in the manner that you see fit, but if we are running up against a funding deadline, um, I'm happy to accommodate a shortened presentations on the first days um, and other papers as well. Ms. Yaramali, good afternoon.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, good afternoon. Anu Yaramali of Latham & Watkins proposed counsel to the debtors. I'm here today with George Clodonis, Lisa Burton, Brian Rosen, and Mohini Rarick, who will all introduce themselves as they take the podium. I echo Ms. Coyle in thanking the court for accommodating us on short notice so that we have the opportunity today to seek the very important first day relief you'll hear about shortly. Um, Your Honor, I, we have a few slides that we'd like to use for these introductory remarks. Um, may I please ask the court to provide Gail Riser with screen-sharing privileges? Yep, we're all Great. set. Thank you. Um, before we get into the substance, I want to introduce a few folks to the court. First, Dan Hart, the company's chief executive officer and one of the first data declarants. Brian Whitman. Of Alvarez and Marcel, the company's financial advisor and the other first-day declarant, Agnes Tang and Dave Zubricki of Ducera Partners, the company's investment banker. Your Honor, we filed for Chapter 11 overnight Monday and served the motions and notice of the first-day hearing on all of the relevant parties listed in the notice provision of each motion. We worked with our DIP lender and their counsel, Davis Polk, pre-filing and before the hearing on the form of proposed orders to accommodate their comments. We also have had very productive discussions with Ms. Sarkeesian of the Office of the United States Trustee, which has led to the resolution of almost all of the office's questions and concerns, and because of her efforts, we will hopefully have a relatively straightforward hearing today. I will provide brief remarks now about the background of the company and how we ended up here today, and then we'll turn the podium over to my colleagues to go through the agenda. I plan to introduce the debtors and their business to court review their corporate and capital structure and spend some time explaining how the company arrived here today and the path forward. The dip financing is a part of this story, but I'll leave that for Mr. Clodonis so that we are not being repetitive. I am also sure your honor has read the first day declaration and I will try to avoid redundancy there as well. Your honor, the debtors were founded in 2017 and from 2017 to 2020, the debtors designed, manufactured, and tested their space equipment and refined their operations for state-of-the-art satellite and launch technologies. The debtors began commercial operations in 2020, achieving 33 successful satellite launches. The company is headquartered in Long Beach, California, and has a testing site in Mojave, California. The debtors provide rideshare satellite services to their customers, And by rideshare, I mean that the debtors can launch multiple satellites belonging to multiple customers in a single mission. The debtors are vertically integrated from design and manufacturing to launch equipment and operations. They offer fully mobile launch services using a modified custom-fitted Boeing 747 named Cosmic Girl and a specially designed rocket named Launcher 1 that is the world's first and only liquid-fueled air-launched rocket to reach orbit successfully. The debtors have the capabilities to provide mobile mobile launch services both domestically and internationally. So why is this company different from its competition? Rather than a ground launch system that is fixed to a specific location, the company uses an air launch system that is more reliable and agile and allows the company to execute launches from any governmental licensed horizontal spaceport with a runway long enough to support a Boeing 747-400 aircraft. The environmental impact of the launch air launch system is similar to commercial aircraft and the launch system is less susceptible to weather cause delays. The debtors operate within the space economy, which is an exciting, growing and competitive industry. The debtors serve both the private and public sector with several key contracts for government and national security agencies to provide their unique capabilities both in the US and abroad. On the public side, key defense and national security customers include the governments of the United States and the United Kingdom. In addition, the debtors offer their launch services to private companies like ANA, and ARCIT, and SAT Revolution, and civil launch organizations like NASA and UK Space. The debtors have had four successful launches in 2021 and 2022. The debtors did suffer one failed launch in early 2023, but have already determined its root cause. The debtors expect to receive return-to-flight status from the FAA during the month of April, and the next rocket launch is in final integration and test phase in advance of its planned launch in the third quarter of 2023. Your Honor, the company consists of five U.S. entities. Virgin Orbit Holdings, Inc. is the publicly traded parent company. The largest shareholder is Virgin Investments Limited, holding approximately 64% of the shares in Virgin Orbit Holdings, and 15th Investment Company is another large shareholder. The stock traded on the NASDAQ until yesterday when it was delisted. Moving down the structure, there are four U.S. subsidiaries, which are all debtors. Virgin Orbit LLC is the company's operational entity, and together with Virgin Orbit National Systems LLC, these two entities are the domestic employers and both hold certain customer and vendor contracts, intellectual property, and equipment. In addition, JACM Holdings, Inc. holds certain equipment, and finally, Viaco USA, Inc. was part of the merger process. The company also has three foreign subsidiaries in Brazil, Mexico, and U.K., that holds limited assets, and these entities are non-debtors, and these entities do not anticipate receiving funding from the debtors. Pre-petition, the debtors issued approximately $70.9 million in secured convertible notes to Virgin Investments Limited from November 2022 to March 2023 to infuse liquidity into the company. These notes are issued by Virgin Orbit Holdings and are guaranteed by the U.S. debtors. The debtors also issued approximately 51 million in unsecured convertible notes to YA2PN Limited, who we call Yorkville. In January 2022, in January 22 and March 2023, through a series of conversions into equity over time and the recent issuance of additional convertible notes, Yorkville now has approximately 2 million in unsecured debt outstanding um also as of the petition date the debtors have approximately 34 million in unsecured trade payables 41 million of contractual purchase obligations and are holding approximately 25 million in customer deposits as well as approximately 6 million in other unsecured liabilities or other other contingent claims with respect to the company's liquidity it's worth going back to the beginning the company was formed in 2017 and the debtors announced its plans to go public in July 2021 through a merger with a SPAC. In December 2021, companies DSPAC and related transactions, including a pipe, raised $228 million in net proceeds. However, this amount was less than anticipated. Since early 2022, in an effort to meet its capital needs, the company worked with Bank of America and Goldman Sachs on strategic transactions and capital raises. Numerous parties executed FDAs and explored options with the company, including strategic acquisitions and debt financing. The company continued these marketing efforts in earnest through March 2023, including after the failed launch I had described earlier. The company also engaged in contingency planning with the assistance of Latham, Ducera, and Alvarez and Marcel. While the company remained focused on out-of-court financing solutions up until the petition date, Management proceeded down a dual track to ensure that the value of the business and the key assets was maintained. The company also formed a transaction committee in March 2023 to evaluate potential strategic alternatives, including but not limited to any debtor-in-possession financing and any Section 363 sale transactions, particularly those types of transactions involving the majority shareholders, including VIL. The company has faced numerous challenges in its business operations and the ability to raise additional funding. These include significant upfront investment needs to develop launch capabilities and acquire customers and scalability issues. This is coupled with challenging financial markets and high interest rates, competition in the commercial markets, attrition and technical issues leading to slow production. And an unsuccessful launch in January 23 negatively impacted the company's ability to obtain significant additional liquidity. Despite those challenges, the company's out-of-court marketing efforts were robust and resulted in one indication indication of interest in a potential sale and one for a structured financing transaction. Unfortunately, neither of those transactions materialized despite significant effort from parties leading up to the petition date. In the run-up to the filing of these cases, the debtors faced liquidity constraints while they continued these out-of-court marketing efforts. In mid-March, the debtors paused operations and placed the vast majority of their workforce on vacation. To that end, they also raised an additional $1 million in unsecured financing from Yorkville that provided additional runway to seek an out-of-court transaction. Unfortunately, these out-of-court efforts did not materialize, and additional liquidity was not available to the company. On March 30th, the debtors secured $10.9 million in bridge financing from the parent, VIL, to implement a reduction in force impacting approximately 670 employees, um, and which was used to provide these employees with severance, COBRA, and outplacement services. The company's workforce has now been reduced to 100 employees that have the key knowledge to maintain the assets and allow business operations to restart once a buyer, is, buyer can be identified. These employees will also assist with with marketing the business, maintaining the debtor's assets, and providing the necessary reporting during the Chapter 11 cases, all with an eye towards maximizing value. Even after these significant measures were taken, the debtors did continue to explore out-of-court options, but ultimately came to the conclusion that a fulsome, open marketing process in court would be the most value-maximizing path forward. Your Honor, there are three key elements to these cases – First is the DIP. Mr. Clodonis will shortly provide more detail on that, but the debtors intend to fund these cases and ongoing operations using a DIP facility being provided by VIL, which includes a new money component of approximately 27 million. The company and its advisors had hard fought negotiations with VIL and its advisors, Davis Polk and FTI, on the DIP and the timeline. But where do we go from here? We intend to, com- to continue the sale process We've negotiated for a case timeline that will allow the company to continue marketing a sale for their assets in whole or in part. The debtors believe that the parties already identified in the pre-petition marketing process, as well as new parties, will have interest in pursuing an acquisition of the debtors. Mr. Clodonas will provide more detail on the milestones, but the debtors do believe that they provide the ability to seek value-maximizing bids, but will also ensure that the company does not linger in Chapter 11. Simultaneously with the sale efforts, the debtors will be working towards a plan and confirmation process. A UCC will be appointed in short order, and the debtors intend to work with all of their stakeholders to hopefully achieve a consensual and efficient conclusion to these cases. Um, unless Your Honor has any questions for me on the background that I just provided, I will cede the podium to my
0: colleague, Amy Cortarola. Thank you very much. I have no questions. Thank you, Your Honor.
1: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, can you hear me okay? I can. Okay. Um, Amy, for the record, Amy Porter of Latham & Watkins has proposed counsel to the debtors. Um, we will be offering an additional declaration when we get to the dip motion, but for now, we have three declarations that we would like to offer into evidence in connection with the first day relief being sought today. First is the declaration of Daniel M. Hart in support of Chapter 11 petitions and first day pleadings. That can be found at docket number 13. Second, the declaration of Brian Whitman in support of Chapter 11 petitions and first day pleadings. That can be found at docket number 14. And third, the supplemental declaration of Brian Whitman in support of Chapter 11 petitions and first day pleadings um, that was filed earlier this morning. That can be found at docket number 56. In addition, at the request of the Office of the United States Trustee, the debtors um, will make a short proffer, um, which is as follows. Um, Daniel M. Hart, the Chief Executive Officer of the debtors, is in the courtroom today and prepared to testify as a supplement to the statements in his filed declaration as follows. Mr. Hart would testify that the statements contained in paragraphs 24 through 86 of the declaration of Brian Whitman, which is found at docket number 14, as offered in support for the first day relief being sought by the debtors here today, are to the best of Mr. Hart's knowledge, accurate. Both Mr. Hart and Mr. Whitman are on Zoom and available for questioning. Um, And accordingly, the debtors would request the court admit into evidence docket numbers 13, 14, and 56.
0: Thank you very much. Does anyone object to the admission of the three declarations, the two of Mr. Whitman and the one of Mr. Hart, as well as the admission of the supplemental proffer? I'm hearing no objection, so they're admitted. For my housekeeping purposes, does anyone tend to cross-examine the substance that the witnesses today on the substance of their testimony? Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate thank the declarance time and attention to submitting the declarations. I had the opportunity to review them prior to taking the bench and they were very helpful. So thank you very much for for those submissions.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. I'll t- now turn the podium over to uh, my colleague, Mr. Cladonis.
0: Okay, great.
4: Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. George Clodonis of Latham and Watkins representing the bidders in possession here.
0: Good afternoon. I'd like to
4: turn to the motion. Good afternoon. I'd like to turn to the motion for entry of interim and final orders with respect to the post-petition financing, use of cash collateral, granting leads, providing super priority admin expense, adequate protection, and modifying the automatic stay. As part of that request for relief, we submit an additional declaration for David Zubricki, who's the investment banker from Ducera, docket number 18.
0: Okay, would it, does anyone object to the admission of Mr. Zubricki's declaration today? Hearing no objection, the declaration is omitted. For housekeeping purposes, does anyone intend to examine Mr. Zubriki on the substance of his testimony today? All right, I'm not hearing anyone. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Your Honor. First, I'd like to thank the U.S. Trustee Um working with us all weekend up until right before the hearing to get to an almost consensual dip order. I do believe that the negotiations between the company and the dip lender on one hand and the U.S. trustee on the other have gotten very close to a consensual dip order. That said, the latest version that we filed was about an hour ago at docket number 55. Uh, At some point we can turn to that and go through some more comments and um, thoughts from the U.S. trustee. Um, But before we get into the details of the, the facility itself, I, I just want to highlight a few points here on the background. And my colleague, Monsieur Amali, mentioned them. But I just want to highlight that, you know, the company has been out in the market since the closing of its fees back in December 2021, trying to raise capital. And although it's been out since December 2021 or early 2022, the negotiations really intensified towards the end of 2022. More specifically, the company hired – bankers pre-petition to run a variation of a public equity raise and a debt raise and other sources of capital to try to bring in liquidity. Um, That process was run by two independent members of the board, but unfortunately, the company was running out of money and continued to run out of cash a number of times between November 2022 up until the eve of bankruptcy a couple days ago. So at the time that Virgin Group, or VIL, which is the company's largest shareholder, had agreed to provide liquidity in the form of debt, and we call those the prepetition notes in the declaration. More specifically, Your Honor, there were five instances that Virgin Group had provided the company with liquidity totaling approximately $70.9 million dollars, seven zero point nine. A central part of the negotiations with respect to those prepetition notes pertain to post petition financing, which would definitely be necessary if the company were to implement any transaction through an in-court process. As payables and wages were coming due, the key here was to get the company into a Chapter 11 process as soon as possible, build consensus around a sale process, and inject these estates and the company with much-needed liquidity. It's important to note that the company filed with little liquidity, enough to pay for wages, and so the dip financing here is crucial to stabilize the company. Um, so through the DIP motion, Your Honor, we're seeking to enter into – or have authorization, rather, to enter into the DIP credit agreement and incur the DIP financing, as well as the roll-up on an interim basis, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, in terms of the numbers and what the DIP does for the company, let me just lay out real quickly exactly what we're asking for. There's – one, at, uh, sorry, $12.5 million of new money today on an interim basis. That's fresh new capital post-petition. The company is also seeking to roll up $10.9 million of what we call bridge notes, which are pre-petition, which were issued last Thursday and used to pay for severance for pre-petition reduction in force. It also gives the debtors an additional $15,150,000 on the final date. And it also has uh, the capability of accessing $4.2 million if the company needs to undergo another reduction in force depending on where the marketing process goes. Finally, there's a roll-up in there for a total of 42.5 million. And if you do the math between both pre-petition and post-petition, it comes out to be about a one-to-one ratio. Um, Your Honor, I mean, some of the key terms to highlight, but they're they're pretty clear in the motion. Um, In terms of interest, the new money in the bridge is cash pay at 12%. The roll-up loans are not cash pay, they're picked. There are upfront fees for fresh capital three percent and that's interim final severance and these bridge notes which pay for the severance the maturity date is July 8 2023 and it gives the company an capability to run a sale process and get to a plan too at the end of the case um, the company submitted um, uh, sorry and just go back for a second. The company believes that the debtors have met their burden based on the first aid declaration and the declaration of Mr. Zugricki as well as Mr. Whitman. The company also believes that this is the best and only dip out there. Ducera did assess the market for dip financing and in fact not only shopped potential dip financing, but shopped the dip proposal that was provided by Virgin Group. And they not only shopped what you would typically see as a junior dip and as a senior dip or priming dip, albeit on a contested basis but also whether any third parties were interested in doing something a little more holistic in the form of refinancing the prepetition notes to effectuate some kind of in-court or out-of-court transaction. But there was no interest. So the dip financing and the proposed roll-up amounts is integrated with the lender's support for the company and the sale process, which is why we're here today. The lender, who is also the company's largest shareholder, has consistently supported this company, both in assuring that there's adequate liquidity to run a strategic process, as well as for the company to take care of its workforce, including the employees that were severed a couple days ago. Um, Your Honor, I, I mentioned the two components of the dip, the roll-up, and the, the, the fact that it's what has been referred to as an insider dip. Um, I do have a little bit to say on that, but I don't know if you have any questions on the dip itself.
0: I do. Um, am I correct in understanding that there is an 18% interest while pick on the rolled up loans that are currently at 16% or lower? Yes. Okay, so it's a higher interest correct. rate for the roll-up loan? Correct. And am I understanding that the DIP lender is demanding a 3% fee on the roll-up portions, or has that uh, been taken out?
4: The 3% fee, which is the upfront cash fee, is on the interim, on the final, on the severance, which is the 4.2. Those are the three post-petition fresh new money components, as well as the bridge, which is the 10.9 that was just done pre-petition. So yes, there's a component that's on the roll-up, but but not on the interim Sorry, The interim final and severance are all post-petition. Was
0: there a fee charged for the 10.9 bridge loan? Just a week ago.
4: You mean fee charged prepetition that we paid as a company?
0: Yes. Has the company already is the company already obligated to pay a fee for the ten point nine that it was extended that was extended last week by VIL or VIL? No, we didn't pay a
4: fee pre-petition.
0: No fees. Okay. All right. Thank you. Those are my only okay. questions right
4: now. Okay. The only compl- I just want to touch briefly on the roll-up point and the insider point because I think it's kind of important to the, the narrative. Um, the company does view the roll-up important as part of the dip, and there's a few reasons why. The first, I mean the obvious, it's a condition to the dip financing, and we needed the financing so it's important to the company. The second is 10.9 million from last Thursday. That was effectively viewed as a pre-dip financing facility, allowed the company to pay approximately 671 employees severance and allow the company to treat its people properly and, most importantly, retain the people that are currently still at the company, approximately 100 people, uh, so that they understand that they're still – you know, that the people are important to this company during this process. Um, the roll-up economics are slightly similar, although to your point, Your Honor, they're a little higher at 2% on the roll-up piece. Um, The bridge notes have allowed the company to maintain, and when I say the bridge notes, the pre-petition notes that were entered into the 10900000 million, they've allowed the company to maintain the core business, the core employees, the key components that are required to run a good marketing process here and to entice potential buyers to make bids. Um, And I also think a key component here, at least on an interim basis, is the roll-up is also subject to the challenge. So I'm not sure how unsecured creditors could be harmed, because when a committee's formed, they'll have the ability to challenge. Um, and then finally, on the, on the insider piece, um, I mean, there is a board here. That board, uh, when discussions began about DIP, decided to create a transaction committee. That transaction committee consisted of existing board members, Susan Helms and Katerina McFarland, who were independent. The Transaction Committee had authority to provide recommendations to the full board. Um, and when the board realized that this is going more toward the Chapter 11 restructuring process, the board decided to bring in two restructuring independents to be added to that transaction committee, Alan Carr and Jill Frisley. And in the end, there was very much active engagement between the committee and the advisors on one hand and Virgin Group on the other hand, arm's length negotiations, At the end, the transaction committee recommended that the board enter into the dip. We think it squarely falls within the companies and the board's business judgment. Virgin Group did not dictate the terms of this transaction. There was an independent negotiation involved. You know, the directors weren't uninformed, did not lack independence. So we don't think the insider piece is relevant here in terms of the way the process was done at the board level. Um and finally just to close it out, the company believes that if this DIP financing is not approved along with the ten point nine, the company will be irreparably harmed. Um, there's virtually not enough cash on hand after we make after we make our next payroll. So, Your Honor, we ask that the motion for dip financing be entered on an interim basis.
0: Okay. Well, I think you've previewed through a reply what the Sarkeesian's issues or objections might be with the debt. I'm happy to hear from yeah. all the parties that are in support of the dip, and then I'll hear from Ms. Sarkeesian, and then you'll have the opportunity to reply. Mr. Resnick, are you here for, the, for VLI?
5: I am, Your Honor. Uh, nice to be back before you, and good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon, and nice to see you again.
5: Um, so I'm here uh, virtually with my uh, colleagues, uh, Josh Sturm and Jared Erickson, as well as our co-counsel from Morris Nichols, Robert Denny, and Eric Schwartz. And we are representing uh, Virgin Investments Limited, which is the 64% shareholder, as well as the existing uh, pre-petition lender and the the proposed DIP lender. Um, So as your honor has heard, our client has been funding the company um, since last November um, to the tune of $70.9 million as the company has engaged in its. process to seek uh, various types of transactions, be it, uh, sale transactions, financing transactions, et cetera. Um, and um, just, you know, in terms of the, the roll-up here, just just to get it directly, um, we were very surgical and targeted in what we're requesting for on the first day here, Um, The remaining part of the roll-up is uh, subject to the the final order, and despite the fact that we engaged in five uh, financings leading up to the bankruptcy, um, we decided, uh, our clients decided that um, for these purposes to request uh, just a roll-up of the um, financing that was provided four days uh, in advance of the bankruptcy, um, it was... uh, to fund, as you've heard, uh, the reduction in force and uh, allow severance payments to um, 87% of the workforce, which is 671 employees, um, to uh, to right size the workforce for this process. Um, and just to uh, reiterate what was said before, that we understand that the debtors were working until literally the uh, petition date um, to uh, to find alternatives to Chapter 11, and so we believe that the uh, the funding gave the company the uh, the chance of uh, potentially avoiding Chapter 11, um, and we think that this is the the type of uh, funding that was done as a, quote unquote pre-debt and was done expressly with a covenant to uh, to seek a roll-up of, of of this amount. Um, we think this is the type of uh, funding that should be um, promoted and 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 um, Uh, and supported, and so we think it's uh, entirely appropriate um, to be rolled up. And and as Mr. Cladona said, very importantly, um, the the roll-up is fully subject to the challenge rights of a committee, and so um, we we don't believe there are any issues with it, uh, with the the financing, but of course, if there were any issues with the $10.9 million financing, a committee would be fully uh, entitled to um, raise whatever challenge um, that they have. Um, Your Honor, I would also just echo the thanks to Ms. Sarkisian. We've been working with her um, non-stop since yesterday and several hours this morning, and I believe we've come to uh, a largely consensual order. I do think there are a few other um, provisions throughout that I understand that she intends to raise, uh, to Your Honor, and we will um, be happy to re- respond uh, when she does so.
0: Okay, thank you, Mr. Resnick. Could you shed some light? I, I understand... Um, I, or at least I can anticipate the issues that Ms. Sarkeesian may have with respect to the roll-up um, and putting those issues aside for the moment. I'm interested in the bases for the higher interest rate on the roll-up loan as well as the 3% fee on the interim bridge. Can you shed some light on onto on to that? I think that's a fairly unusual, um,
5: yeah, perhaps uh,
0: detrimental give by the estate. On these roll-up loans and while I may not take issue on giving roll-ups on a bridge this does seem to give the lender more than to which it was entitled to one week ago and so could you shed some light on why that would be appropriate at the interim
5: sure at the time that um, that our clients did the the financing um, last Thursday I believe we were um, looking to match the terms of the prior um, fundings that had been done and so I think we, we matched the prepetition rates that were in effect that's by my understanding I don't have it in front of me so um, uh,
0: I think you were uh, at 12 to 16 percent on the prior loans
5: exactly and the four the, percent the differential represents um, uh, that's right now I just brought up so the four percent differential represents the default rate um, so uh, so um, so the, the March 30th financing matched the interest rate in the, of the February and the January financings, um, because if the company were to avoid Chapter 11, then we would have been fine with the same rate being in effect. Um, the default rate is the additional 4% that would get you to 16%. Um, and so now, Your Honor, our, our view is that if this is being rolled up into a debt. Um, it should have the same rate as the new money loans, um, albeit uh, I understand it's being um, paid in kind. Um, and then there were no upfront fees charged last Thursday. The company did not have the liquidity to pay it. Um, so we just would have had to uh, upsize the loans and – and sorry, upsize the note and – Round trip to 3% to ourselves, which we didn't think would make sense to do uh, last Thursday. Um, And so
0: um, that's why we're seeking payment of the fee today, where um, the company will have the liquidity under the debt financing to pay it. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, why don't I hear from Ms. Sarkeesian? Thank you, Your Honor. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Thank you.
6: Um, good afternoon, Your Honor. Um, so it, uh, for the record, Juliet Sarkeesian on behalf of the U.S. trustee. Um, so I'm going to um, start with the issue of the roll-up. And <clears throat> so my understanding, and, and counsel can correct me if I'm wrong, is that on an interim basis, there's going to be a total Amount of 23.1 million of that 10.9 million is a roll up. So, by my math, that's 47% of the interim DIP financing is a roll up. This is an insider loan. So, the DIP lender is the majority shareholder of the debtors, Um, controls uh, is an indirect parent. It is the prepetition lender, and it also, my understanding, is is the licensor of the trademark of Virgin. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, so it, it is unquestionably an insider loan. And to have a, a four, a, such a significant percentage of the interim financing, almost 50%, be a roll-up on the first day with an insider loan, the U.S. trustee objects to that. Um, in addition, as Your Honor pointed out, the interest rate is 18% on the roll-up, and it's 12% on the new money. I mean, that's what I saw in the motion. Um, I just heard Lenders' Council, I thought it said something higher than that. But my understanding, based on the motion, is it's 12% for new money. That is paid in cash. And then the 12% is, is paid in kind, plus the 3% fee. Um, so that's a very significant difference, in addition to being more than than what it was for the pre-petition piece of it. Um, the U.S. Trustee believes that the committee absolutely should have an opportunity to be heard on the roll-up and if a roll-up is allowed on the first day um, they certainly can't, they could challenge the rest of it at the final hearing but they will not be able to challenge rolling up that <clears throat> $10.9 million. Now I heard Lenders counsel say well you know it's subject to the challenge period so if someone, if the committee or another party in interest were to challenge the, say, the validity or the perfection of the prepetition liens, and that was successful, then, of course, the roll-up would be unwound. But that's only a, a piece of it. Um, the other piece is the fact that the roll-up takes what was a pre-petition secured loan, with, which w- would, going into bankruptcy, be a pre secured claim, and turns it into gives the, the certainly the claim then becomes a super priority claim um, so that is a difference and that does not change I mean, again of course if the if the underlying prepetition liens are set aside if it's, there's a successful challenge yes, that would affect everything but it may be that there's not a successful challenge but nevertheless you, one could still object to taking the prepetition claim and turning it into a super priority claim. And that is something I believe that the committee should have the opportunity to object to. I do also want to put on the record that the U.S. Trustee reserves its right at the final hearing to object to the roll-up even on a final basis, but we're not addressing that at this point in time, just the just the interim. Um, we also believe that a roll-up here is unnecessary. And again, this is based on the many hats that the that the lender's wearing here, I mean, it really appears honestly that this bankruptcy is being run primarily, if not exclusively, for the benefit of the lenders, who again are also the majority um, shareholders here. And I, I can't I, it's really hard for me to imagine um, an entity in this position where the majority shareholder, they already have the pre-petition loans to walk away if they're not getting a 47% roll-up on the first day. Um, and I, I now want to talk about that trademark issue, which is really concerning me. So it's my understanding, based on the documents, that prior to the petition being filed, that the the lenders who are also, again, the pre-petition slash DIP lenders, who are also the holders of the Virgin license, have terminated that license, or I understand that the debtors can continue to use the virgin name until the sale is done, but it effectively means that the debtors will not be able to sell um, as part of the sale. And this is a, from what I understand, a fast sale case. Debtors, the lenders are pushing a really a fast deadline here that they're not going to be able to market, you know, that we are when we sell this you are going to be able to use the virgin name. So that's not going to be part of what's being sold. And, you know, I'm not disputing that the lenders may be within their rights contractually to have done that. I have no idea. I haven't seen the license. I assume that the committee will look into that, but, you know, it does hamper the ability of the debtors to get, you know, the highest possible recovery for their assets. So, I think in light of all of these things and how many hats that the that the dip lenders are wearing here that um you know a roll-up is just again on the first day um we would ask that it not be um not be approved your honor unless you have further questions with respect to the my argument with respect to the roll-up is finished and I would just ask your honor, you may like to hear other parties respond to my argument on the roll up before we get on to the other issues which are, you know, I would say much less significant than than this one.
0: My preference is to hear your argument in its entirety. Yeah. And then I'll hear from other parties and in interests and we'll move Absolutely. forward. Okay. And no just so problem. everyone is aware, I have a contested dip hearing starting at three today. So while I am anxiously awaiting and will give you as much time as I can, um just be mindful of that three o'clock hearing. Okay. And your honor, if
6: it's if it pleases the court, um, I would like to refer to the black line that was for, for pagination purposes. The black line that was filed um, with the court at around
0: noon. That's fine
4: be document number 55 I believe you're
0: on it. I have it up. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So okay, the
6: first page would be um, 31 of the black line which is paragraph 7b as in white You're in okay, we're in subsection B is in board So the issue here is um this, these are the dip financing liens, and this has to do with the, the priority of the dip financing liens. So um, in, in in A talks about unencumbered property, so we're not we're not dealing with that. But in, in B, I had asked that these are the priming liens. And it states in the in the third line that this will be these liens shall be first priority senior priming security interests in all tangible and intangible pre-petition, post petition property of the dip loan parties, which are the debtors. It's a little confusing. Um, so I had asked, this is a, what I understand is standard, um, to to have an exception, which is to make such liens subject to any valid, perfected, and non-avoidable lien in existence as of the petition date, maybe other than the primes, other, other than pre uh, prepetition lenders liens, and any valid uh, non-avoidable lien in existence as of the petition date that is subsequently perfected pursuant to 546B of the code. Now, that is included in subsection C, um, but it's not in B, and I, and I think that that is appropriate to be in B as well, subsection B as well. And I know that the the heading of it is liens priming certain prepetition secured party liens, but if you read the language, it is not actually limited to the prepetition secured party liens because these dip liens are becoming first priority senior priming security interests. Um, so that is does your honor have any question about that
0: point? I apologize what paragraph are you in i understand what your position is but i'm there's seems as if there's three paragraphs that this could be relevant to and i just want to make sure i'm looking at or at least two it paragraphs
6: seven b is in boy and it's on page 30 it's like the top of page 31 of the of the file black
0: line And you said that this language you requested is in another paragraph. Well, it's in paragraph C. Is in cat, but the the difference
6: is that they specify it's it's under well, so it's one two three four four starting at four lines down, and C is in cat, and it, it continues over to the next page. The difference there is that there it specifically says senior it uses the word senior liens, whereas Again, just in my experience with, at least with interim orders, it, it usually doesn't say spe- specify senior, just says valid, perfected, non-avoidable security interest as of petition date, or that becomes so pursuant to 546
0: Okay.
3: So.
6: The, sorry, Honor. Okay. All right, so the next one is seven. I'm sorry. So the next one's in seven D is in dog. And that is on page 32 of the black line. And this is lean, the heading is lean senior to certain other liens. And if your honor goes down. Starting in line in line 5, going on to 7, it, it's, it's including, so it's senior to, to certain liens, and it specifies any liens or security interests granted in favor of federal, state, municipal, or other governmental units. And I had requested, or, or regulatory bodies, um, and I had requested that that particular provision regarding governmental units and regulatory bodies be made subject to final order. Um, just to give you know, such entities an opportunity to come in. as I am not particularly knowledgeable about regulatory, gov- governmental regulatory liens, and would, would certainly like you know, the opportunity for those entities to be heard um, at the final hearing. Oh, and that's also, it's the exact same issue in paragraph 19A. I, I don't think you need to look at that. It's, it's exactly the same wording. And unless your honor has any questions about that, I will move on. I don't. <clears throat> so the next one is paragraph 10. Oh, there's no subsection. Paragraph 10, and on the, on the black line, it's at the, with the, towards the bottom of, of page
3: 35.
6: And this, this provision relates to rights and remedies upon default. And I'm looking at three lines from the bottom of page 35. It's talking about what issues can be raised in an an emergency hearing. If there is a default and the debtors or other parties want to run in and ask for an emergency hearing, this says that the sole purpose of the hearing would be to contest whether or not an event of default has occurred or is continuing. Your Honor, I I, I don't know that I've had this issue Discussed before your honor, but I know some other judges do have an objection to the word soul, to limiting them to just addressing um, whether or not an event of default has occurred or is continuing. So I'm I'm actually just flagging this for your honor, um, if your honor wishes to change that. Should I move on to the next? Yes, that would be great. Mm -hmm. the next is paragraph 13 which is on page 37 of the black line and there's um there's two issues here so this provision is headed payments free and clear and is your honor caught up
0: yes i'm there
6: okay So um, it says, any and all payments or proceeds remitted to the DIP agent by, through, or on behalf of the DIP secured parties pursuant to the provisions of this interim order, comma, the DIP documents. And then the next piece of it says, or any subsequent order of the court shall be irrevocable, receive free and clear of all claims, et cetera. And... I had a concern you know, talking about any subsequent order of the court. We don't know what those orders might be. Um, so I was uncomfortable with, with having that language in here. Um, I'm sure that if there's a subsequent order of the court that's relevant that the dip lenders will ask for whatever they deem is necessary for their protection. Um, but I was concerned about putting it, putting it in here. And then the other piece, and it's the, it's the same paragraph, so you'll see if you go down to line 5 and 6, there is a, a reference to sections 506C and 552B of the code. And there I had asked that those provisions be subject to final order, um, just as they are in paragraphs um, what's it, 11 and 12, I believe. 11 and 12. Um <clears throat> And i know this is a little bit different because it has to do with payments but again nevertheless it seemed consistent with what is typically done with respect to 506c and 552b to make that anything related to that be subject to final order so that the committee can raise any concerns they might have um your honor should i move on yep
0: just keep plowing forward and i'll let you know if we need to go slower the next one
6: is now? page 46 and it's paragraph 19 right the end of end of paragraph 19 B is in boy it's towards the top of page 46 and this is the actual the last three lines of this um, paragraph it's subsection C and it says this court shall retain jurisdiction um, and notwithstanding such dismissal, meaning dismissal of the case for the purposes of enforcing the claims, liens, and security interests referred to in this paragraph and otherwise in this interim order, and I do know, again, I, I don't know if I have, this, this has I've had this issue before you, but I know that some judges object to this provision. And uh, surely, Your Honor, I mean, if the case is if the case is reopened, there's no question that the court would have jurisdiction. But prior to the case being reopened, this I don't. I think Makes a whole lot of sense here, um, but again, I'm, I'm really mostly your honor flagging it for you so that you would see it and make whatever ruling is consistent with what you've done in the past. Okay, so that is 36. um, okay, and next is paragraph 20, which is on okay. 20 is payment of fees and expenses and we're on page 49 so what this provision relates to is um, it requires the debtors to pay the professional fees among other things but the professional fees of the lenders and it has the usual language that um, you know we've negotiated in the past and they put it in here where they would send the invoices to our office we would have 10 days to review the invoices they're limited we're not getting full invoices we're getting a you know, limited amount of information, but it's at least some information. Um, and then, you know, we have the opportunity to object if we feel that the, you know, the fees are unreasonable. Um, and and so that's fine until you get to page forty nine, where in the middle of the page they make an exception. And let me tell you what it is first, and I'll tell you where you can find it because it doesn't really stand out. Basically the exception is well, anything, any of the professional fees relating to the DIP financing. So the DIP fees and expenses, including those relating to professionals engaged by the DIP secured parties or the prepetition secured parties, they get paid without having to, you know, follow the provisions set forth in this order. Um, the lenders had offered to, I understand the closing is, if it's, if the dip is approved by the court that the closing is planned for tomorrow, they offered to give me these invoices, I guess, now, um, it's, you know, I appreciate that offer. It's not a lot of time. And if I had any objection to them, I would really not have enough time to run in here. Um, I also think the committee, the committee is, is one of the parties that also gets copies of these. Obviously they're not going to be formed by tomorrow, um. And so, you know, we think that that should um, come out. I think it could be subject to the same procedures. I don't have a problem with them getting paid as long as it's subject to disgorgement. If, you know, we, we or the committee, you know, later challenge the the amounts as unreasonable and are, are successful. Okay. All right. Now we get to paragraph 21 and which is the effect of the stipulation on third parties? This is commonly what's known as a challenge provision, and it starts. There's a there's a few issues here. It starts on page 50. So, if you would go to about the middle of the page. Two, four, six, eight, ten. I think it's the beginning of ten, line ten. There's a parenthetical that says that. In each case, what was it? Standing has to be obtained pursuant to an order of the court prior to the expiration of the challenge period. So a party has to file the motion for standing and your honor has to rule on it prior to the expiration of the challenge period. Um, we have an issue with that. Um, we don't think that's fair. Uh, then, In fact, in this case, the challenge period might even be less than 75 days because it's the shorter of 75 days or, I think, plan confirmation. Um, so we typically, the language, what we typically ask for, and I know we've certainly gotten this in many cases. Um, again, I don't know that I've had this issue before, Your Honor. am sorry, I'm just trying to get to my page on this. Um, okay. Page 50. So, so we asked for that language to come out, and instead, we asked for language that said um, that the filing of a motion seeking standing to file a challenge before the end of the challenge period, if it attaches the proposed challenge shall extend the challenge period with respect to that party until two business days after the court rules on the standing motion. If the court grants the standing motion, they would then have two days after entry of the court order uh, in order to, um, you know, go ahead and and file so that it doesn't. Otherwise, effectively, that 75 days becomes a much, much shorter period. And again, um, also, I think, forces the court to um have to make somebody you have the person making the motion has to guess as to how long it's going to take the court to to rule on it so that was um that was one issue that we we had and then the other issue and um i will have to say to um to debtors counsel and lenders counsel, i apologize i had not this was language I gave you. You did not accept it. But in our call, I had um, I had overlooked it. So we had asked that if the case converts to a case un- to cases under Chapter 7 or Chapter 11. Uh, I'm sorry. If the case converts to a Chapter 7 or if a Chapter 11 trustee is appointed prior to the end of the challenge period. So before the end of the challenge period, a trustee, either Chapter 7 or Chapter 11, is appointed then the challenge period shall be extended for that chapter seven or chapter 11 trustee to 30 days after their appointment um and you know with some flexibility on on the days but they you know if they got appointed say two or three days before or the case converts two or three days before the challenge period ends it would be nearly impossible you know for a trustee to pull everything together um in a day or two to do what's being demanded And again that's pretty standard to have some period, you know, it, it might not be 30 days in every case, but that's pretty standard ask and a pretty standard, um, you know, agreement that we get. Okay, and we are getting to the end of this, Your Honor. Um, I think, okay, it's extension of 2054. more things your honor um paragraph 24 so that is on page 56 of the black line and this provision is titled interim order interim order governs and the first well the only sentence now is that in the event of any inconsistency between the provisions of this interim order and the dip documents that's fine then it says in the third line, or any other order entered by this court, the provisions of this interim order shall govern. So the interim order governs over any other order your, your honor may enter, whether today or apparently at any point in the future, and that um, when we think is problematic. We're okay with the rest of that. Um, obviously, the interim order should govern over the, the DIP documents, but not any other order that is entered by this, um, this court. And I think that's consistent with, um, I know your rulings in the past with respect to having similar language in the actual, like, individual orders, like, you know, wages or or insurance that I know in in the past, Your Honor has just excised that type of a provision. In those orders, this is the same provision as just in the the financing order instead of the individual. They did not put that in the individual orders. Um, And the very last thing, Your Honor, is um, that I just don't know Your Honor's preference for this, so... Um, It it has to do with the the wording of the subject to final order. So the the language that they've used throughout is just subject to entry of final order. And and I know particularly that Judge Silverstein, um, the language that that she has said that she likes is subject to to entry, subject to and, and effective upon entry of a final order granting such relief. Uh, so I had asked, you know, I, I think that it would be appropriate after final order to say granting such relief because if the final order doesn't grant the relief, then, you know, you're not going to get it. But, again, I, I just bring this up so that you're on it, you know, whatever your preference is in that regard um, to make sure that that gets incorporated. And I believe that those are all of my issues.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you, Ms. Sarkeesian. Let me ask before I hear from Lenders Council or Debtors Council in response, is there anyone else that wishes to be heard in connection with approval of the interim dip in use of cash collateral today? Okay, I'm not hearing anyone. Um, Mr. Resnick, Mr. Clodonis, I'll sure. defer to you on how you want to handle the issues. Uh, quite frankly, I've h- highlighted many of the same myself that Ms. Sarkeesian pointed out, so if you want to respond on certain points, this is your opportunity uh, to do that.
4: Yeah, can I just respond on a few points that are not, not that are not in the context of the dip order, um, and then we can talk about the dip order? I think there was a um, discussion about the percentage or the ratio being forty-seven percent. I just want to be clear what we're asking for today. It's twelve point two five million new money post petition under the interim plus the 10.9 million roll of the bridge notes for the severance. Um, As far as the interest rate goes, I think there's a little back and forth on that. Let me just be clear. The pre-petition bridge notes are 12% with a plus 4% default rate, so 16%. And then our roll-up on those notes is 18%.
0: Right. So it's 2% higher. Okay. And the new money loan interest I read in the pleadings is twelve percent, so it seems to be six percent higher than the new money loans. Is that is that correct, or was there am I misunderstanding the pleadings?
4: No, the the new money loans for interest is twelve percent cash.
6: Okay. All right.
4: Um, as far as the roll of the pre petition secured claim and the estate and running this process for the benefit of lenders, just very quick, a few points. Um, I mean, if this thing gets challenged by a committee, I think effectively what can happen is 10.9 comes unsecured and it falls below the pre secured debt. And by the way, VIL is the only other pre secured funded debt holder, so there aren't like other inter-creditor issues here. I think effectively we get to the same place but ends up being unsecured. Um, As far as, look, running for the benefit of the lenders, I mean, I think the process is being run for the benefit of as many people are being benefited from it, which includes employees, uh, vendors, taxing authorities, insurance, the things we're asking for on day one, because I think the alternative would have been something worse, and at least we can, like, stabilize on day one to get people paid on account of certain claims. And then we'll see where the process goes. We don't want to say where it's going to go, but we're optimistic and we're hopeful that the process is going to go well. Um, on the trademark issue, Your Honor, I, I mean, yes, it was terminated. I, I think it was in um, Mr. Zagricki's declaration that the trademark was terminated pre-petition. Um, the, the counterparty had the right to terminate pre-petition unilaterally. We decided we, if we could get a better deal by mutual termination, we should do it. Well, we could, and we did. Basically, we have supposed to debrand. It was called debranding. Uh, from Virgin by the time of the um, disposition, the sale order effectively, or the closing of the sale, so it gives us some time and some runway. I mean, I don't think we'd be able to assume and assign it as a licensee over their objection, and the reality is, look, people can do whatever they want consensually. If there's a buyer and there's a conversation with anybody on this point, they'll have the conversation. Um, but we at least wanted to make sure that the bidding process was open and clear that everybody understands where we are in terms of the virgin you know trademark other than that i mean we can get into the orders like the, the specific things that were raised i don't know brian uh, sure. the if you have anything you want to add hold on before uh, we
0: move forward i just want to be clear i'm not approving anything today in connection with the trademark termination am i is there something in the dip document that i did not see
4: no no we just thought it w- i mean look it's a condition to funding. Okay, um, but it's already happened. It you already the
0: signed credit. the you already signed the agreement, correct?
4: Correct. Okay, and and we don't want to bury it in the credit agreement, so we put it in one of the declarant declarations, so people saw it. And we understand somebody might have questions about it, but we don't want it to come up a month from now. But wait a second, <laughs> what is this trademark thing? So we thought putting it in someone's declaration, so at least people saw it.
0: Okay, thank you. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't essentially approving that termination it's just a disclosure issue it sounds okay thank you mr resnick yeah
5: that's right sure thank you and i uh, agree with everything mr has just said uh, and i'm happy to walk through the various provisions of the if order if that's helpful um and express our view um so starting on page 31 um i don't think there's a disagreement on substance here your honor i think it's just drafting um but uh session b talks about the belief that Prime um, the prepetition secured liens, and I just don't think it's the right place for the 546b uh, language, which is in section C um, that refers to the liens junior to certain other liens. And so, this is where it, C is the section that describes the different liens being junior to other liens. And so, we just I think it's just a, a proper placement uh, of that provision. But I don't believe there's anything uh, substantive that we have disagreement on there. Um, I'll pummel through, but please uh, stop me if you have any uh, questions or want to discuss any of it. Um, so, uh, I believe page forty-five was the next one, um, and that is uh, the. Part no,
6: actually, I'm sorry. You, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. You did skip one, which was page thirty-two. I'm sorry. 30, what? Seven D's and dog.
5: Seven D. Okay, I'm sorry. Page thirty what?
6: Thirty-two. This is the issue about
5: the liens by governmental and regulatory. Got it. Okay, I said the wrong picture for that one. Um, so, so, right, this is the um, the dip liens are senior to any um, any liens uh, that come up, uh, including those uh, that may be in favor of, of governmental units. Um, Your Honor, uh, if, if a governmental creditor wants to raise an issue at the final um they can do that, but um, we're not used to seeing this as being subject to the final order. So if any uh, highly unlikely event that anything were to happen in between uh, interim and final, um, we think this is perfectly appropriate relief that you don't have to worry about there being other uh, liens that are inappropriately ahead of the lien, and quite frankly, I just haven't seen that be subject to entry of the final order. Um, okay, and then, um, Your Honor, in terms of uh, the... Um, the issues that the debtors can raise um, at a remedies hearing. Um, I understand that this uh, goes both ways and judges uh, have their preference. I mean, our view is that you know a committee can come in and raise what the committee wants, but um, the debtors have entered into their agreement with the lender here as to what happens if there's a default. And of course, if there's a debate about whether in fact there's a default and that's Perfectly properly before your honor. Um, but if there is a default, then the debtors have agreed that lender has has the rights that they have under the agreements, and so um, so that would be our, our position on, on the word sole. Um, but we do un- we do understand that, um, that courts go various ways on that one, but we think it's appropriate as between the, the agreement between the lenders and the debtor. Um, page thirty seven. Um paragraph thirteen uh so I read this provision as basically saying that if there are any um payments made to the dip but lenders uh so repayments of the dip loan that those are irrevocable um and you know et etc. um and um this uh um this so this ha- has, has the um, subject to sections 506C and 552B of the bankruptcy code. So this is different than, I think, the the, the sections elsewhere that refer to um, the 506C waiver and the equities of the case waiver being subject to final order, which they always are. This refers to actual repayments of the dip loan. And so um, while I'm not entirely sure we're going to get repayments before the final order, um, if the dip loan is repaid, um, uh, prior to the final order, our view is that those should not be uh, disgorgeable uh, or subject to any claims retroactively under 506 to um, I will move to um, uh, I think, um, oh, sorry, there was one other point on that paragraph 13, I believe uh, Ms. Arkezian raised um, that uh, payments are free and clear um, if they're required under any other subsequent order of the court. So I, I think this is a little bit more theoretical, uh, to be honest, but uh, if another order of the court were to require pay down of the dip loan with proceeds, say, of an asset sale, uh, I think that pay down should be uh, irrevocable. and um, I mean, Ms. Arkesian's view is, well, the other order could say that, but, of course, our clients are extending the credit today based on this DIP order and based on an expectation that if it, if it receives repayment under the DIP, um, that that is uh, not, not Um With that, I will move to page 46. This is... Um, retaining jurisdiction, uh, like for purposes of uh, enforcing claims. I think um, I think it's appropriate. Um, I, I understand, you know, um, maybe courts go different ways on this, but we think it's, it's perfectly fine for the court to retain uh, jurisdiction following dismissal of a case uh, for the purpose of enforcing um, the dip claims. I don't think we're going <laughs> to... We're going to be worried about that in this case, but it's uh, perhaps uh, theoretical, but we think it's fine and appropriate. Um, Page 49, Um, this is the payment of uh, fees. Oh, so in in our experience, Your Honor, uh, payment of uh, fees, um, payment of lender fees are always uh, paid at closing. Uh, and are not subject to the uh, review period that, you uh, know, experience starts uh, thereafter. Um, the, dip are, the dip lender here, dealer is funding um, is funding an amount that takes into account um, uh, prepetition and fees incurred through. Uh, through closing and uh, it would be appropriate and is uh, universal quite frankly we couldn't find a precedent otherwise um, for fees to be um, to be paid at closing and not subject to the 10-day review period um, we also think that this is not a practical issue um, but uh, we don't anticipate any any issues on, on fees but um, but just as a uh, uh, as a matter of kind of what is customary and appropriate, we believe that if the lender is funding an amount today that accounts for uh, for fees um, to, be, to be paid at closing, that those uh, should be paid and, and should not be uh, discordable based on any uh, process. Um, we have nothing to hide with, uh, with the respective professionals' fees, and, and we have offered to share those today with Ms. Sarkeesian um, uh, to be paid at the closing, but um, that, that would be our position on that one. Um, paragraph 21 is, oh, this is a challenge period in terms of whether, uh, whether a committee or somebody else, um, pursuing a challenge has to get standing by the deadline or, um, uh, or just file a challenge. Um, we understand, Your Honor, that uh, courts go different ways on this. We do have, um, uh, several precedents, Your Honor, that, um, that provide for this formulation, um, we think you know we'd like this to be a, a, a quick and orderly case, and we think having this uh, this requirement will help in that regard, as opposed to having a, a lender continue to fund sort of a, a, an ongoing longer process. Um, but we do uh, respect the fact that um, courts go both ways on on this issue, and uh, would we'll defer to your honor's preference on it. But we um, we believe this is justifiable. Um, I think uh, paragraph um, okay. This was oh the the extension of the challenge period for thirty days after the appointment of a trustee. Uh, Your Honor, I think if, if a trustee were appointed, we have no doubt that they would come in, Your Honor, and um, and seek an extension to pre-legislate for that. which don't think is is necessary, uh, and if so, thirty days is uh, uh, perhaps a long period. Um, but we would defer to Your Honor on that one. Um, paragraph 24, uh, in terms of the interim order of governing. So, Your Honor, we did have language in all the other orders that said that um, they were, you know, subject to the dip, bu- DIP order and the DIP budget, and we had specific language on, on the DIP budget and stuff. Um, we, we agreed to, um, to, uh, to delete that, although I do think it's uh, helpful language that is, that is justified. Um, I believe what uh, Ms. Sarkeesian has an issue now is just the reference to any other order of the court. Um, this order says a lot of things and there are a lot of protections in, uh, in this order. And I think we just wanted it to be clear that, um, that there's no other order that could um, uh, Im- impact or take away all the rights, protections, means, and and claims and everything else that is, uh, that is very carefully and meticulously spelled out and granted in, in this order um and then i have um oh the, the language of uh subject entry in the final order yeah your honor we went with the simple version that we see in many precedents and we just think that's appropriate i think if we were to add uh additional language um which is arguably superfluous it could lead to a, uh, an ambiguity and a question of whether the relief that we're getting is uh, similar to the same to the very usual and customary relief that's granted in other orders, so we have a preference for our formulation. Um, I believe I hit all the issues, but I would ask Mr. Sarkeesian or anybody else to let me know if I missed any.
0: Yeah, you hit, you hit them all. You hit them all. Thank you very much. I will say this is one of the more thoroughly argued DIP orders. Um, and in the interest of time, I am prepared to rule, given what I have after this hearing. So let me just say um, based on the facts and circumstances described in the declaration, in the declarations and on the records today record today, um, I have no doubt that the relief requested here, the dip and the cash collateral usage um, are absolutely necessary to the success of these cases. The issue here as demonstrated by the parties and myself, comes down to what would be reasonable terms. Let's talk about the roll-up first. Um, given that the roll-up is subject to the challenge period and the fact that the pre-petition bridge loan was extended a few days prior to the bankruptcy, I have in the past allowed roll-ups under these circumstances, even if it is an insider providing the prepetition bridge loan which quite frankly is one of the more common circumstances that I find on a first day, given the liquidity issues that are presented by a debtor coming into a case, and the lack of available third-party funding. Effectively, it's a pre-dip, DIP, dip, as one mentioned. Um, And so I I don't take issue with that, nor the amount. But I am wary of allowing the roll-up on it uh, at this interim hearing on less than 24 hours notice, if it will be on less favorable terms than what the pre-petition loan was. That's something that this court has consistently um, disfavored. And so I'm taking issue with the interest rate, which is 18%, which is above the new money loan interest at 12%, and higher than the pre-petition interest. And I also am wary of the 3% fee being approved at this time. I would ask the parties consider that those two items be subject to an interim provided that I would be prepared to approve the same interest rate on the roll-up loans the 12% or the 16 whichever one it was prior to the filing Um, if you want more you can seek it at a final and I think the 3% fee given that it's paid on the closing uh, I'm not prepared to approve that because it would be out the door before a chance a chance for a committee to to review that and weigh in so those are two material issues um, and I wanted to effectively address those head-on. With respect to the actual form of order and the terms of the lending to the extent that VLI is willing to move forward with the diplo and given the my comments with respect to the interim lo- roll-up, um, I am fine with most of the changes su- suggested by Ms. Sarkeesian. I think they're reasonable. Um, however, there are a few that I will not require and I'll just for the sake of time, tell you what those are. Those are the changes that were requested by Ms. Sarkeesian in paragraph 7B, 7D, 19B, the standing issue in paragraph 21. For this point, I see that as a final issue and I'd like the committee to weigh in on that. Um, And the the final point about subject to entry of a final order. Um, I have two other further comments to the form of order. And then I think we need to talk about breaking so I can handle my hearing and um, coming back at a later time to finish this hearing. So let me just highlight the the two other issues I have with the form of order. Uh, Mr. Resnick, with respect to the remedies period, uh, my position has been that the debtor can raise what it wants to raise. Um, So that provision would need to be struck. But there's a paragraph after these – the at issue sentence that starts except to set forth in this paragraph 10 or otherwise ordered by the court prior to the expiration of the remedies period. Um, and then it goes on that the debtor waives this right and shall not be entitled to seek relief under 105 or any other provision that would impair or restrict the rights and remedies of the dip agent and the other secured parties. I think that's inconsistent with the prior paragraph or the prior sentence. If the debtor could come in and raise what it would like to raise with me during the remedies period, uh, then this waiver is not an appropriate waiver. So I would ask that that sentence be struck. My second and, and final. Your Honor,
6: com- Your Honor it just, uh, I just want to make sure I, I'm sure what sentence that is. Um,
0: it's still in paragraph 10. Yes, it's the paragraph that starts after the sentence that you had issue a clause and I'm sorry I lost my page and it starts with except for. So, but it's it's
6: still in yeah. the main part of. Do the debtors know where, where the language is? As long as the debtors know, I'm fine. I'm just having trouble. Uh, top of page thirty six, okay.
4: bottom of page thirty five, where it references section one oh five. I
6: see it. That okay. Comes. Okay. So that entire sentence should come out,
0: then, Your Honor. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I'm acting quickly, but I have many, many people waiting outside my door. So I'm just trying to push this along. So my last comment is in paragraph 35 in the paragraph that states payments held in trust. It's more of a question. Um, I certainly understand the, the point of this provision, I guess I would ask if there's primed, if there's non primed lien holders that receive payment, are they required under this paragraph to hold the funds in cash? It is the dip collateral. So I don't think that's what you intend, Mr. Resnick. I think if you're not priming someone and they receive payment on account of their non-primed statutory lien, it's of course not going to be held in trust for you. So if if our understanding is in line, is aligned, perhaps we need to tweak this paragraph to account for the nine non primed lien holders. So I don't think my comments to the form of order, quite frankly, are material. However, I will defer to your client, Mr. Resnick. But my comments with respect to the interest rate and the fee are material. And I understand that I'm asking something of the pre-petition lender that perhaps it was not expecting. Um, and so I guess I would ask from you, how would you like to proceed given my timing constraints and also for now basically and the, um, and the need that we get this order entered as fast as possible if your client is going to continue to lend.
5: Um, so your Honor, I would like a brief um, time period to confer with our clients. I think we can do it briefly if your honor didn't have but in, in light of your honor's hearing, um, is there a time later this afternoon that you could hear us and does that work for the debtors?
0: Well, let me ask, on the balance of the first days, I have examined all of the first day pleadings as well as the orders that were submitted. Are there open issues with respect to those orders that are going to be argued to me today?
6: Um, Your Honor, if I may speak, uh, Juliet Sarkeesian on behalf of the U.S. Trustee. From the U.S. Trustee's perspective, <clears throat> the only thing that was open is um, – we needed a clarification with respect to insurance um, to be put on the record, and um, I am required to, read by my client to read into the record um, a statement relating to uh, 345B requirements. Those are the only two things I'm aware of from, my, from the U.S. trustee's perspective.
0: Okay. Just in the interest of time and attempting to conclude this hearing and give you all adequate time, as well as my other case that I have. I am gonna do something that's very unorthodox, which is I am going to take all of the remaining orders that are being presented to me on an interim basis. And I'm gonna ask, does anybody that's appearing today wish to be heard in opposition to, those, to the interim relief? Okay, I'm not hearing anyone. I have no questions or concerns with respect to the substance of that interim relief and I've read all the declarations, they are entered into evidence and support the necessity for that relief. It's clear that the U.S. Trustee has weighed in and commented on all those forms of order, and they are consistent and customary with those that I've seen in every one of my cases. And so, um, subject to the representations that are going to be made on insurance and cash management, um, I am going to approve those orders i also take solace in the fact that we have a local role that provides reconsideration of these orders within 30 days given that we're under extreme time constraints today so why don't we hear those two representations and then Ms. coyle you can announce on the record what the second day hearing is going to be once those orders are uploaded we will get them entered as soon as possible contingent of course on the dip So, why don't we take the insurance representation first? And Ms. Sarkeesian, I'll hear you uh, on your 345B representation or explanation that my understanding is your office is going to put on the record. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, My name is Mohini Rarick on behalf of um, proposed counsel to the debtors for Latham
2: and Watkins. Uh, So, for the insurance order um, at Ms. Sarkeesian's request, we can confirm that the debtors seek authority to pay premiums for workers' compensation and aircraft hull policies under the insurance order, and these policies benefit only the debtors, specifically only Debtor Virgin Orbit LLC, and not any of the foreign non-debtor subsidiaries to Virgin Orbit Holdings, Inc. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Ms. Sarkeesian.
6: Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Again, for the record, Juliet Sarkeesian, on behalf of the U.S. Trustee, I will read this as quickly as I can. That would be great. Mm. Section 345 of the Bankruptcy Code obliges um, the debtors in possession to require from an entity in which estate monies are invested, uh, number one, a bond having features defined in the Code Section 345B, or alternatively, two, the deposit of securities consistent with 31 U.S.C. Section 9303 unless the court orders otherwise. So in connection with the cash management motion, we make four observations. First, Section 345 places an obligation on the debtor in possession to require protection for its monies from the institutions which hold such monies. Second, while Section 345 does not mention the United States Trustee's office, this office in its supervisory role, pursuant to 28 U.S.C. Section 586, Assists with protection of debtor in possession funds by its entry into Uniform Depository Agreements, also known as UDAs. UDAs obligate depositories to maintain collateral for bankruptcy funds on deposit in an amount not less than 115% of debtor in possession and trustee deposits which exceed FDIC insurance limits. The United States Trustee maintains information on the banks who have executed UDAs regularly. Provide this list to debtors' advisors and is working to post a current list to its website. Third, in order for a debtor in possession to comply with Section 345 where a UDA bank is involved, the debtor in possession must first identify and disclose all of the depository accounts where monies are held, and second, contact those banks to ensure that the relevant accounts are designated as debtor in possession accounts. If the debtor in possession does not identify all of its accounts and take steps to ensure that its accounts are properly designated, then the bank will not treat such accounts as debtor in possession accounts. Fourth, recent bank failures highlight the importance of the debtor in possession's compliance with Section 345 for the benefit of its stakeholders. U.S. trustees seek specific language in any interim cash management order that identifies concrete steps and a definite time frame to achieve compliance with Section 345 that was done in this instance. The United States Trustee encourages the debtors to act promptly to ensure full compliance with Section 345 and reserves the right to be heard on the cash management motion at the final
0: hearing. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Sarkeesian. I think that that statement is is very helpful, and um, I'm glad that it's being read into the record. As I mentioned, this is very unorthodox. I understand that there are many first-day motions and applications that have been Filed, but again, given my time constraints, I'm going to make the ruling that, based on the facts and circumstances described in the various declarations admitted into evidence today, um, I will approve the relief sought in those interim. Uh, excuse me, I will, I will approve the interim relief sought in those motions and applications. Um, with one exception, of course, Kroll is being retained on a final basis, and so there's no interim relief with respect to that. It's on a final basis. I am satisfied that the debtors have met their burden necessary to carry the motions and applications, including that of Rule 6003, and that the relief is appropriate and warranted. I thank all the uh, attorneys that have worked on all the various first-day motions and applications. I appreciate that many of you um, were going to present them today. Perhaps it was your first or second time presenting in court, and I don't take that lightly, and I apologize that you did not get your opportunity to do that, but I hope to see you in second-day hearings and further hearings uh, at the podium and you'll certainly get i'm sure your opportunity to do that so this is not the last time i will see you um miss Coyle, when is the second day hearing for all those that are participating
3: uh, the second day hearing will be may 1st at 9 30 in the morning
0: excellent thank you and then the objection yeah, uh, objection deadlines uh, okay. will be
3: when april 24th at 4 pm okay perfect okay and your your honor um just before we close it out. Uh, The orders have all been uploaded with two exceptions. Um, With respect to the critical vendor order and the lien holder order, we noticed there was a typo where we referenced uh, the trade agreements as being attached to the order. Um, I don't think that's a substantive change and we were going to uh, submit revised orders removing that um, and we'll submit those under certification of counsel right after the hearing and upload the orders.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. All right, Mr. Resnick, given that we're only going to be hearing the dip in cash collateral, I would suggest we come back at 3.30, and I would give you 15 minutes at that point, and then I have to go forward on an emergency contested dip hearing, so I cannot give you any more time. Um, but I certainly want to give what this case needs. So let's come back at 3.30 unless you, you feel like you can get an answer quicker than 3.30. Uh-
5: that should work, Your Honor. Um, can I ask one que- clarifying question? The 3.30 it will, will work.
0: Okay,
5: um, great. Can I ask one clarifying question? Um, we've been sort of going back and forth, and I uh, just want to make sure you heard there was a discrepancy in what we heard. Um, in terms of paragraph 20, Your Honor, you um, heard uh, few of us heard different things on whether uh, this is payment of visa closing, um, whether you are Requiring any changes to that effect?
0: Well, I guess I would say you have two ways to go. Either you delete the subject sentence that Ms. Sarkeesian highlighted, which effectively nullifies her review period, or um, you make it subject to disgorgement. Got it. Because you're using estate funds to pay fees and claims, and they need to be reviewed by the U.S. trustee's office and she needs, their office needs adequate time to review them. One day is not sufficient. So um, I have no issue with you getting paid and I think Miss Mar- Sarkeesian made it clear she has no issue with you getting paid, but we need to have a true review period.
5: Understood, Your Honor, thank you okay. clarification.
0: And if, yes. and when I say disgorgement, I don't mean it to be a lengthy process, okay? If oh, I, it g- if, it, right, okay. Yeah, yeah
5: it would, uh, your Honor, Presumably, be the same review process as the go forward. Once that 10 days passes, I assume the discordant ends. Right. The same, the same review process, essentially.
0: Yes.
6: Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, could I ask one clarifying question as well? Sure. On the provision relating to um, the challenge period, I, I heard your ruling regarding standing. How about the issue of if a Chapter 7 or Chapter 11 trustee is appointed prior to the end of the challenge period, getting some additional time?
0: I agree um, with you. I My only issue with that paragraph that I don't think needs to be incorporated is changes to standing, because I want the committee to weigh in on that. However, it is customary and appropriate for the trustees to have additional time if the challenge period has not run prior to their appointment. So I agree that change should be made and I apologize for not being clear and running through these issues very quickly. Does anyone else need anything clarified before we part ways and I see you at 3.30? Okay, if something comes up between now and then, you bring it up at 3.30, all right? So we'll take a momentary adjournment. Thank you all, see you at 3.30. Good afternoon, everyone. We are reassembled for continued hearing in Virgin Orbit Holdings. Mr. Resnick, when we broke, you were going to check with your client regarding the status of the, of the dip funding, given my requested changes in the interim period. Were you able to connect with your client?
5: Uh, I was, and as it turns out, um, the news for Your Honor is actually even better than you may have hoped for, um, which is that um, there's an incredibly... Um, convoluted set of uh, confusing defined terms in these documents. Um, and As it turns out, the 18% rate doesn't actually kick in until the uh, second roll-up at the final order, and the rate uh, being charged on the, um, the interim roll-up of just the, the $10.9 million, um, is actually lowered to 12%, which is the same as the rate being charged on the new money loans. The, um, the note uh, would be in de- is in default, and so had um, had we not done the roll up, there would be extra four percent of default interest would apply. So the roll up is actually saving um, the estate four uh, percent.
0: Excellent. Okay. And then on the fee issue.
5: Yes, uh, Your Honor, my clients are fine um, having that be subject to uh, the final order and therefore not paid at closing.
0: Okay. Well then, based on those changes, I am prepared to enter the form of final dip order with the – and cash collateral order with the appropriate revisions as we discussed previously. Um, I think I mentioned this, but I'll make a more formal ruling based on the facts and circumstances described in the declarations today, Um, as well as on the record. Um, I am prepared to approve the interim dip and cash collateral relief sought subject to the appropriate revisions being made as we discussed on the record today. I am satisfied that the debtors have met their burden necessary to carry the motion, including that of rule 6003, that the relief is appropriate and warranted and that the terms are reasonable and as well as that the parties acted in good faith um, in negotiating and reaching the terms of the final dip and use of cash collateral. I will look for a revised form of order today, hopefully, and have it entered as soon as possible. Ms. Coyle, when do you anticipate submission of the order?
3: Uh, we're working on it right now, Your Honor. Uh, we anticipate hopefully within the next you know, 20 minutes after we've circulated to the parties in interest for their sign off, uh, we have a funding deadline of 5 p.m. So we'll get it over to you uh, as soon as possible.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you all very much, Ms. Coyle. Please email it over to Chambers after it's um, after it has been filed. If I'm on the bench, I'll try to take a break so I can review it and have it entered prior to five o'clock.
3: Thank you, Your Honor. I much appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Your
0: Honor. Thank you all very much. I'll just ask: Is there anything that we need to discuss before we part ways? And I see you at the second day hearing. No. Okay. No. Okay. Thank, you very much. Thank you all Appreciate very it. much for your time and attention in this matter. The first day papers were excellent, as well as the declarations. I really understood the issues prior to taking the bench, and I know a lot of hard work went into drafting those papers, as well as the um, agreements reached in the DIP. Look forward to seeing you all as we move forward in these cases. And with that, we're adjourned, and I'll see you at the second day hearing. Thank you all very much. Thank you,
6: Thank you Your Honor. Thank you.